0: When I'm driving, and I, this is not a typical driving story of Brian, uh, but when I'm driving and I see a stray animal, uh, I think to myself, I hope it knows where it's going. And I hope its family finds it. When my wife is driving and she sees a stray animal, it doesn't matter how stressful and packed her schedule is, she stops, goes up to the, let's say, dog, tries to figure out how friendly it is and if it'll let her, let her lead it around the neighborhood. And then she goes door to door to see if anybody recognizes the dog and either knows they're looking for it or knows who it might be. And as, after she tries a neighborhood, if that doesn't work, she puts the dog in her car and drives around the blocks nearby to try to see if, she's, if she can find anybody who's wandering through the street looking like they might have lost a, a pet. And if that doesn't work, then she'll call me and she'll say, I'm so stressed, I really have to get where I'm supposed to go, but I have this dog in my car. And almost always, she finds its home. Very rarely she's had to take it to the Humane Association and hope that the owner finds it. And so when I drive by and I see this possibly lost pet, that's all I get. But when she drives by and spends all this time searching for the owner, then she gets the experience of reuniting this pet with their owner and seeing the look of relief and joy on their face. Tonight, our text is a parable where Jesus talks about a lost animal, a lost sheep. Through our Lenten series, we've been talking about wanting to be sheep, that we want to be the kind of person that knows our shepherd, and that stays close to him, that experiences his love, his guidance, his correction, his dependability, his protection. And this parable that Jesus offers, I think, gives us an even clearer picture of the love of God for us and what it means to be rescued as one of his sheep. So we're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 15. Starting at verse 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them, the Pharisees, this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. Oops. (laughs) Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, That in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you tonight. And we thank you for the opportunity to have these words echo in our minds that whatever the situation, you will. We can trust you. You're a good shepherd. Father God, as we reflect on these words, Jesus, your parable, we pray that you would help us understand more about ourselves and more about you. That we would hear your invitation to us, that we would trust you, and that we would rejoice in being rescued by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the controversy in this scene begins there's there's conflict as Jesus is spending time with sinners and the Pharisees are confused, frustrated, disappointed because Jesus associates with sinners. We've seen it before We saw him hang out at a party at Levi's house, the tax collector. Spending time with Levi and his friends. We saw it as Jesus interacted with the woman at the well. In a few chapters later in Luke, uh, we'll see it as Jesus again invites himself to the home of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Jesus spends time with sinners. He He hangs out with them. He eats with them. And that's not something that the Pharisees would do. You see, in the Old Testament, God had instructed his people for their own protection to stay away from sin. To guard and protect themselves. To leave distance between them. Because, in their weakness, any exposure to that temptation could corrupt them. And while God had given these laws and instructions to his people in order to protect them, and in order to teach them about the destructiveness of sin, the Pharisees, over time, had developed this theology that made it seem like God's righteousness was fragile that anything could break his holiness. But Jesus lives dramatically differently. And as Jesus, God himself, comes on the stage, he goes right into where sinners are and demonstrates that God's righteousness and his holiness are incorruptible. That no exposure to sin can ruin God's holiness. It stays strong and pure through all things. The Pharisees had also determined that spending time with sinners, eating with them, associating with them, being in their company, would be kind of equivalent. Not only would it be dangerous to their own kind of moral standard and their own righteousness, but it also, they feared, would affirm people and give them confidence suggesting that their sin wasn't that significant. But Jesus, from a different perspective, just races right in, spends time with broken and sinful people, not to say that their sin doesn't matter, but to demonstrate that his love for them is the first step in rescuing them out of their sin. And so these two different competing pictures of God frame the context for Jesus' parable. The rabbis apparently taught in Judaism that God would welcome a penitent sinner. If someone were sorry for their sin, God would make space and bring them in. In fact, there's a I came across this Jewish saying that says there's joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. All right? So like God is holy and righteous, and he's so angry about sin that he is joyful when the sin destroys the sinner. And so this is part of their mentality and yet they would recognize that if someone were sorry for their sin, that, Jesus would, that God himself would make space for them. But Jesus teaches us something dramatically different. And he offers this parable and a couple more parables after this in, in Luke 15 with, this, with similar themes. To teach us that joy in heaven comes not from condemning sin, but from rescuing sinful people. And so Jesus tells this parable. He says, now any one of you, so he's spending time with tax collectors and sinners, and it's fascinating. I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again and again and again and again. The way Luke records this for us, In this location at this time, Luke records that all the tax collectors and all the sinners were were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. And Jesus was pleasantly in their midst. But the Pharisees were concerned, disappointed, frustrated, and trying to demonstrate that they knew better than Jesus. And they scoffed at him. And Jesus responds to them, their disappointment, whether he actually heard what they said or just was responding to their thoughts. He says, If any of you had a hundred sheep and one of them were lost, which of you would not leave the ninety-nine in the safe, open pasture to go out and seek after the one that's lost. And as you wander around looking for all the dangerous places where this one sheep might be found, when you come across that sheep on this rocky little cliff about to find its demise, you will gently pick up that sheep, hoist it over your shoulders, and with great joy, return. And when you get back, you'll have so much rejoicing in you that it won't be enough for you to just be happy to set the sheep down with the other 99 and just be like, ah, it's a good day. No, instead you'll come back and you will call your friends and all your neighbors and say, come to my house. I found my lost sheep. And so Jesus wraps up his parable with this statement. He says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And I think this picture that I stole off the internet Um, helps us understand what Jesus is really saying. Can you see the posture of the righteous people who don't need to repent? They're all like... And that helps bring out this point that Jesus is being ironic. As he makes this point. He says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who don't need to repent. And what he's trying to say is that we know through all the teaching of Scripture, and in particular the teaching of the Gospel of Luke, that there is no one who's righteous enough that they don't need to repent. But there are some who see themselves that way. And so Jesus is challenging the Pharisees by this statement. He says, I'm spending time with the sinners, but they're listening to me. They're learning. And some of them are repenting, and their lives are being changed. But you're standing over there. You're scoffing at me. You're not paying any attention. You think you're fine. Jesus says, you're actually in danger. And the joy of heaven is found. And those over there who recognize their need and are being rescued, Jesus explains that the self-righteousness, the human righteousness, does not lead to rejoicing. It doesn't. It's not a cause for celebration in heaven. Maybe the opposite. But repentance, rescued sinners are the reason for the party in heaven. So what does that mean for us? as, As Jesus tries to explain the heart and the righteousness of God, he invites us to recognize ourselves as the lost sheep. but he also wants us to recognize that while it used to be understood that God would just be waiting for us to be sorry and turn to him, Jesus instead tells us that the God who made us on purpose and loves us doesn't leave us to our own demise, but he actually pursues us, chases after us, looks for us, even before we recognize we have a need. And so we might at times be tempted to think, could God love me? Like, you don't know what I've done. Some people are convinced he couldn't love me, that he might even hate them. But Luke 15, 1 reminds us that God, find, he associates with sinners. He finds himself in the midst of sinners. That Jesus actually came from glory to earth so that he could be in our midst and bring us to him. all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear what Jesus had to say. But some of us might say, hmm. But seriously, you don't know. Like, I've really made a mess of things. I, not only have I made a mess of my, whole, my own life, but I've really messed up other people's lives. I messed up my family. I messed up this relationship, I'm, I've made a mess of things. And then our attention might be drawn to John 13, a kind of traditional passage for us to reflect on as we prepare for communion on Holy Week. John tells us, this, tells us about the night that Jesus was betrayed and when he first instituted communion, as he gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And John records for us that in this moment, Jesus in his humanity is somehow now more fully aware of all that he is and all that he's been called to. And John tells us that in the midst of this moment where The Spirit makes it abundantly clear to Jesus all that he is and all that's going to happen. In the midst of his recognition of all his glory and power, he takes off his outer robe, wraps a a rag around his waist, and goes before his disciples and washes their feet. And so we're reminded, we're told clearly that Jesus in his power took on the role of a servant to show that there's no mess so terrible, no chaos in our lives so confusing, no mess that's so dirty, so stinky, where he won't meet us. But you might say, it's not just that I've made a mess of things. It's not just that I know the darkness in my heart better than you do. Like, what I have in my past is, is shameful. It might even be public. And Jesus reminds us That he too was executed as a common criminal. And as he did that, certainly we see the truth of our own sin. That regardless of how it might compare to other people, the darkness in our hearts is devastating and dangerous. It leads to our demise and destruction. We are like the lost sheep who can't find its way on its own. Who can just fall off a cliff and be lost. And so we see in Jesus' death the weight of our sin. The reality of how far it separates us from the God who made us on purpose and loves us. But at the same time, we see in Jesus' death on the cross in the embarrassment and shame that he was willing to go to in the midst of his awareness of his glory and his own righteousness and innocence that there's no crime, no guilt, no shame that can put us in a place so dark that God hasn't been there and wouldn't go there to meet us, to reach us. To rescue us, early in the service, we read these verses from Isaiah 53, and I just want to repeat a few of them. Verses three through six says he, and it, it's important for us to recognize that Isaiah r- wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus came, up, came to earth. But this is written to help us recognize what the true Messiah would do for us. It was written about Jesus. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid, hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. You can see the shame of someone being executed as a criminal for all to see. The people would scoff at him and say, How great could he be if that's what happened to him? But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. (laughs) We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and away from the God who made us on purpose and loves us. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So as we walk our way through Holy Week, and we reflect on Jesus and what he's done, we're reminded tonight as we prepare for communion that we on our own are all lost sheep. We can't find our way back on our own. We can't fix our problem on our own. Only our good shepherd can rescue us. But he came to do just that. And in his power, in his righteousness, in his holiness, he has not remained removed from us. But instead, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the darkness of our sin, wherever we find ourselves tonight, we are not so far that Jesus won't meet us there. That he won't meet us here. And in fact, he's already done all that we need. And he invites us to come, follow him, and be free. Let's pray. Oh, great God of highest heaven, dearest Lord Jesus, what can we say? you know better than we do the darkness in our own hearts. You know the ways we try to clean it up. You know the ways that we can't, that we fail again and again. You know the ways that we hide it from other people. You know the truth. And in response to that truth, you've come near. You've come here. And not only just to be with us, not just to be an example to us, but to, to take on our darkness, our sin, our guilt, our shame, make it yours, so that through you, we can be whole. We can be your children. We can be set free. So, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive you in the bread and juice of communion, we pray that you would call us by name, that you would affirm who you are and what you've done, that you would affirm for us your knowledge of us and your love for us that does not fail. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So tonight it is my privilege to invite you to receive by faith Jesus himself through the bread and juice. It is Holy Week, and so let's listen to the story of our Lord's suffering and death for us as given in the Holy Scriptures. We'll hear more about it the rest of the week. Let's take it in. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabaxani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it. Put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let us also hear the gracious invitation of our Lord given to us in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus himself says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In John 3, we're reminded, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, just to demonstrate how sinful we were, but to save the world through him. And then we're reminded in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As I pray this prayer of confession, I invite you to pray silently with me. Almighty God, our Creator and Redeemer, we poor sinners confess unto you that we are by nature sinful and unclean. That we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By what we have done and what we have left undone. There, therefore we flee for refuge to your infinite mercy and ask you for Christ's sake to forgive us for all our sins. By your Holy Spirit, increase in us true knowledge of your will. That by your grace we may walk in your ways to the glory your holy name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. A participation in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread that we break. A participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. As we... Prepare for communion tonight, just a few reminders. First, we practice open communion at Bethesda, so whether you don't have to be a member here in order to participate with us, it's available to all who trust in Jesus as their Savior. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and trust me and I will give you rest. I can forgive you and set you free. So if you're trusting in Jesus tonight, whether you've been there for a long time or this is the first time that you recognize you're lost sheep and you need rescuing, you're invited to receive this by faith.